As we come to our time of communion today, uh, in just a moment we're going to be playing a couple of songs and, and ask that uh, any of those that would like to participate, you can come forward during those songs and, and partake of the elements and maybe uh, the cups and stuff in the red container. But we're instructed as Christians to do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And I'd like to, to steer our attention today as we, as we strive to do that to Romans, the sixth chapter. I'm sorry, the fifth chapter, verse six and following. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have not been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, it not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I'm struck with the words, the one would hardly die for a righteous man, but yet for the, maybe a good man. Someone might dare even to die. I don't think many of us had had the experience in life where you've had to put others, persons, life into your hands, into the decisions that you make. And it can be a scary place. Or one would hardly die for someone else. Yet, Jesus did that for us. And the, the eye-opening part of that is that he did that knowing while we were still yet enemies, sinners. He says one would hardly die for a righteous man. Well, how about someone who's not righteous? But God's love for us was so strong he has a passion for us that he bore our sins on the cross. That through his blood we will be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, let's live in that reconciliation. And just now, as we partake of these elements, let's remember the price that was paid for us. Let's remember his body broken for us. Let's remember his blood that was poured out for us. And let's live for him with the same passion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for it. We thank you for your passion for us. That you showed us through Jesus Christ. Father, how can we repay such a debt? 
Father, as we partake of these elements just now, that we would remember that passion and that love, and that that would change us. His death was for us. His life is for us. Guide us in that, as we would remember. In Jesus' name. Sing with me how 
We're in the series through Ephesians called the Hard Time Letters. You'll see that pop up behind me at some point in time when they catch up. And today's message is first century cognitive behavioral therapy. And I say that, even though I've already introduced you to what that is, I say that because that's what we're actually going to do. We're going to go through this chunk of Ephesians and we're going to experience cognitive behavioral therapy in the 21st century, but it was written in the first century. We've got it. If you don't know what cognitive behavioral therapy is, I will show you again on a slide that will appear behind me at some point. (laughs) You can go ahead and skip ahead to that next slide. There we go. Looks like a triangle. So first of all, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you have to modify the thinking. So you've got thinking at the top. If you modify the thinking, then you necessarily impact the feeling. The way you think impacts the way you feel. And then this necessarily leads to behaving more properly. And this includes what you say how you say it. But notice how this chart goes. The behaving, once you get that improved, this also helps your thinking. You see how that works? It just keeps going around. But it's bigger than that. It actually, once you get all this moving, you get the thinking modified correctly, now your feelings will be right, and then your behaving will improve. And then all of this works together. Watch these arrows pop up now. It goes, they all work together. So now that your feelings are properly in order and your behavior is in order, it, both of those impact your thinking. So they all impact each other, actually, as you get it all in order. But it starts with the thinking. Now, this is something very interesting that I've discovered. Even though in the first century, God set this up. He already, he, we're just now figuring it out. But as we are implementing cognitive behavioral therapy in the 21st century, a lot of people don't like having the thinking being the first thing. So because we live in a world now where feelings are more important. I don't know if you've noticed this. In fact, it is considered in an increasing number of circles that thinking is actually racist. That's a new thing. That's interesting. So you, they want to go with feelings. You just got to run with your feelings. Don't worry about the thinking piece. It's kind of weird. But so what I've seen in the cognitive behavioral therapy is this thing gets twisted. And, and the thinking gets off to the side and feelings at the top. And when you, if you start with your feelings, that's, that's going to mess you up. Let me explain. Let's just say you have a high school teenager that you want to advise and this high school teenager is going to go on a date. Now, the way I would advise, some of, if one of your high school teenagers comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm thinking I'm going to go on my first date. I don't know what to do. One of the things I would tell them, this is in my head because it's what I taught my kids and it's, it's a good thing. Well, I would recommend that if you're in a car together, put a Bible right between you. 
That's a good way to start. Let's just get that in right up front. But let's think about this. What if somebody told a teenager, just do whatever feels good? Would that, would that work out well? No, it's going to be a disaster. You're going to end up with a teenager running with their emotions, and they're going to end up with, stuck with somebody that everybody that loves and knows them is, is thinking, you've got to dump them. You've got to dump them. They're bad for you because you just ran with feelings. You don't think. You just run with feelings. You end up in trouble. So this is cognitive behavioral therapy. Thinking leads, modifying your thinking properly leads to feeling properly, and behaving properly. And then they all work with each other when you get it right. Now, I want to remind you, God did this in the New Testament, just to refresh your memory. The word metanoeo is a Greek word. You can see how you say it in English. Up, It comes up next. It's the word for repent. That's the way we translate it. It's a powerful word if you don't believe me. If you're in the middle of a discussion between a husband and wife, one of you try this. Repent! See what happens. So repent is a very powerful word. What it literally means in the Greek is, I change my mind. It's what Jesus preached from Matthew 4. It says that he preached this from the beginning. It's what the apostles preached on the day of Pentecost. It's all the way into the book of Revelation. Repent, change your mind. And literally it's, I change my mind. So the message is, to get us to say to ourselves, I change my mind. We get that backwards oftentimes in our churches. We think our job is to modify other people. That's our job, to get in there and we got to correct their behavior. we got to correct their behavior. Instead of working on mine, I need to fix my thinking so that I'm feeling properly and behaving properly. We get quite a bit worked up over other people. But we don't always think, I need to change my mind. And Christians, if you ever arrive at a point where you think that you don't need to repent anymore, you have a humility problem. So I want to have this in your head because we are going to come back to this. And you'll see it as we go through Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, now this is an interesting thing. I'll go ahead and read it. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. It's interesting that Paul would start this section with now. After all of these things where he keeps going, therefore, 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 he keeps leading all these, he leads us all the way up here. He started off talking about the Gentiles versus the Jews. Remember this? We are now considered grafted in. We are now in the family. And those that are outside, he's referring to as the Gentiles. We are in. Those other people, we're supposed to look at them and think, we used to be just like that. Don't be critical. You used to be there too. Remember how he took us to all those places reminding us? And now, and he, the emphasis is God's grace and the love of Christ. So now he arrives with now. Now this I say and testify. So, so he's been building all the way to this now. After all that, this is what I want to tell you. And it's what I want to testify. In other words, this I understand. I'm inspired by God, Paul is saying. This is real 
and you need this. I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So don't be critical of them. You used to be like that, but you shouldn't be anymore. Don't don't behave like you used to behave. In the futility of their minds. Look at that. It goes back to, without the word repent doesn't appear in our text at all today, but it, sh- it screams in the concept from a couple of places, and this is one of them. In the futility of their minds. That's the way they walk. They're walking outside of what Christ wants them to do. But it's in the futility of their minds. That's where it starts. It's in the thinking. What does that mean, a futility? That's like, Worthless. <laughs> the worthlessness of the way they think. They think in a way that is just pointless. It's worthless. It's not good. It's not directed. It's not helpful. That's why they behave the way they do. And you should not be doing that, Christians. I want to take you to... Because what we've got today in this particular passage, it's, it's like we're, we're back in... Proverbs. That's what it feels like. So I want to take you to Solomon, the writer of the Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, a place in which he was severely depressed because he had prayed for wisdom, and the way he had to learn it was he had to go through the rigors of life. That's the way we learn wisdom, too. In Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 3, it says, you can identify fools just by the way they walk down the road. I I'm using the New Living Translation, and it's a very good wording. It essentially says in the original Hebrew that a fool identifies themselves even as they walk. A foolish person is not paying attention to what's going on around them, even as they just carry about the daily things they normally do. A foolish person isn't just foolish when they talk. They're foolish as they walk. So don't walk as the Gentiles do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, the next verse. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Notice this, they are darkened in their understanding. That's not a very good way to describe somebody uh, that's smart. (laughs) This is somebody that is, they're not thinking properly. If you have a darkened mind, that means you have clouded judgment. And these people have clouded judgment. They're not seeing things very brightly. Here's, here's the way this plays out. So Sunday after Sunday, I cannot remember in this backup recorder I've got here, which way the batteries go. So I put in the rechargeable batteries right over there in the corner of this room. This room is a little bit darker than that room out there. But Sunday after Sunday, I have to turn the corner and look because I cannot tell where the plus and minus signs are in that micro print they do there. I don't want to have darkened vision. I want to be able to see clearly, so I step out there. Same thing with our minds. We don't want to have darkened minds. We want to understand clearly. But those that don't walk in Christ's way Those that walk outside of God's plan, they have darkened their understanding, alienated from the life of God 
because of the ignorance they have in them, because of their hardness of heart. They are choosing not to think in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. So they can't even see clearly. We're back to the mind again. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The language that Paul is using here is supposed to upset us. He's using very descriptive language that any Christian should be bothered by as they read it if it's going to describe someone who's claiming to be a Christian. But it's describing the Gentiles that we're not supposed to be critical and judge. We're not supposed to behave like them because look how nasty this is. That's what he's saying. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I think of callousness, uh, I actually think of my stepfather playing ping pong. That was a big thing in the South when I grew up, all the time. And he walked around barefoot a lot. And because of that, he had very callous feet. And it was, his feet were so callous, they were actually kind of nasty to pay attention to because they were like a quarter of an inch of calluses on the bottom of his feet. Nasty. But to him, that's very comfortable. I remember playing ping pong as he was, I was sitting out and watching, and I remember some of his friends, smoking was a big deal back then. A lot of everybody pretty much smoked that was an adult around me. And his friends decided to prove a point, and they tossed cigarettes at his feet, and he was like stepping all over them as he's playing ping pong, and never noticed. Didn't even notice. He was being burned. His calluses were keeping him from noticing. And that's the way the Gentiles are. They're so callous, they don't even realize the danger and trouble that they're in. And notice this other language here. They've given themselves up to sensuality. That's You're supposed to think that's a bad thing, Christians. We're supposed to understand it's supposed to be an automatic thing within us. We don't behave like that anymore, so we are supposed to know. But we live in a world in a time where sensuality is everywhere. It's all over the place. The way people dress, the way things are advertised. And sensuality is something people just think that's what you're supposed to, you're supposed to be normal and you, you have this sensual desires and you've, you're supposed to chase after them. Christians, not us. We are not to behave like that. We're not even supposed to think like that. But you do know that that's the way people try to market things to us with our sensual desires, you know? I'll recommend again the book, I don't have it up behind me, The uh, Marshmallow Test. You can, it's not a Christian book, but it tells you the, gives you the idea of how people will be more successful if they can learn to put off instant gratification, do delayed gratification. If you can learn that behavior, you will most likely be successful in life. And Christians, this is supposed to be part of who we are. We don't chase after sensual desires. That's not what we're about. We don't even think like that. And notice this word greedy. That's supposed to bother us. Here's, it doesn't though, many of us, uh, Christians anymore, it becomes, by the way, I'll tell you this up front, this sounds like a bad thing. I like going to casinos. 
especially when they have a buffet, because they're going to lose money on me. I'm telling you right now, I'm getting a bunch of the king crab or dungeness crab, whatever. I'm going to pile it up. Hey, it's just all you can eat. They think they're going to get me to go and gamble. I don't gamble. This is the Lord's money that I'm given. I cannot gamble. How horrible of a thought that is that a Christian might gamble. But sometimes we do. And what causes us to gamble? Greed. Greed is not supposed to be part of our lives, Christians. And when we read this, we're supposed to be bothered. Like, oh, I don't want to be that dirty. Greedy. Chasing after sensual desires. And this greed, look what he puts it with. This greedy practice. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I am a germaphobe. You will rarely ever find me without uh, some type of sanitary wipes and then individually packaged on my person. Uh, They're always there because I am a germaphobe. And so I I understand impurities in the sense of germs. I've got so many stories I could gross you out with, but I don't know if you've ever ever experienced when you go to get a glass of water, uh, tap water, and it's not clear. Most people that aren't germaphobes don't want to drink that. It's not clear. Ooh. You don't want to put a little bit of contaminants. Think of a nasty thing. You wouldn't want just a tiny little bit sprinkled in your water. Oh, it's only a little. No, we don't want any impurities. And that's the way God wants us to be. Not chasing after impurities. He wants us to be pure. Okay, look at the next verse. Verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learn Christ. You know better. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I love how sovereign God is. He is inspiring Paul to write this. He knows this is going to wind up in the Bible that people 20 centuries later are reading. And some might not even know Christ. So he's got this little caveat in here. This, from the beginning, this is a presumption that you know Christ. You've been taught. You know him personally. You see, if a non-believer reads this, they might perk up and say, Hey, what is this I'm supposed to know about? And by the way, I want to I make a little uh, plug here for an evangelism opportunity. Every now and then you'll come across somebody um, that is a little bit reclusive, they're to themselves, and you think that kind of person would never be comfortable in our church because they're, they don't like to be around other people very much. You know what? We have uh, different ways that they could serve in a church like ours, and a lot of times we can plug them into the perfect place, which I think is the audio-video booth. That's a great place for people who like to be isolated by themselves, maybe only a couple of other people around, and they usually thrive. And if you have a friend who's a non-Christian that's good at electronics, tell them we have a need because we can always use more help in the AV booth. And even if they're not a Christian, we'll put them up there, right? Chris will help them out. And then next thing you know, they'll hear the gospel and maybe come to Christ. Think about Let your mind spin with that. Think about other ways that you might be able to get some friends here because we need them, and they might get to know Christ as a result. So verse 22 continues, and we'll read through verse 24 in this section. 
to put off your old self. You've been taught, you're presuming you know you're supposed to do these things. Put off your old self. You're not like you once were, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Isn't that interesting? That idea of following your sensual desires, those are deceitful desires. We're not supposed to be chasing after what we like and what we want, Christians. We're supposed to be chasing after what God likes and what God wants, right? That, and I told you last week, I talked about replacing the carpet that can divide churches. And I'm not saying this because this church is divided. I think this church is very united. But when good things are happening, the devil loves to get in there and try to divide. And the way he does it is through somebody being selfish. That's the way divisiveness divisiveness happens in churches if you have a division it's because somebody wants it their way and somebody else wants it their way and there's division and if we all are trying to do it God's way we'll be a little bit more gracious with each other and we won't be chasing after our own desires but God's so you're not like that anymore you put off your old self and and it's your former way manner of life and it's corrupt corruptness through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Notice that. I'll have it underlined up behind me. Renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember I said that it screams off the pages, this concept of repent, change your minds. It, It doesn't say the word here, but here it is again. Renewed in the spirit of your minds. It starts with our thinking. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, doing what is right and being different than the world. Set apart. Holiness, that's what that means. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are we are members one of another. Speaking the truth with our neighbors is important. It's not as important as it should be to some of us, but it is important. And sometimes some of the truths we have to share are uncomfortable, but it's good to speak the truth. Let's look at verse 26. This is an interesting one. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I read verse 27 as well, because it all goes together. This is all in context here. Be angry and do not sin. That's an interesting idea. Some translations say, in your anger, do not sin. It's, there are some that will say, being angry is always wrong. And there's reasons for that. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures in a minute that indicate that. But the reality is, if God is upset about something, if God is angry, we should be angry. That pleases Him. But notice what we're taught. In your anger, don't sin. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other other words, resolve your issues. And give no opportunity to the devil. Because what happens is if you stew in your anger and stew in your anger, what that means is you're not doing something to resolve the problem. You're just going to become a bitter person. 
But I want to give you those scriptures that other people might use to say anger is always wrong. Here's one of them right here. This is from Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 and 25. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. That's the NIV. That's the way it works. You might say, as I don't know if you've seen this, but people will go and they'll go to the buffet, like I, got, I like to go to the buffet, and people that'll go to the buffet and load up their plates and load up their plates and eat, overeat in extreme excess, and then their family members do the same thing, and then they say, instead of, we should stop, we, we shouldn't overeat, they like to say things like, I'm big boned. Excuse me, it's a behavioral issue, it's not an automatic thing. You can't keep on getting bigger without putting too much in there. I know from personal experience, that's the way it works. And that's the way it is in, in life. What happens is, people like to say, well, he's got an anger problem, because you know, his, his, his dad was like that, it runs in the family. No, it doesn't run in the family, it was taught by his dad. That's what the scripture is saying in Proverbs. I don't know if you're catching this or not, but anger is a learned behavior. If you have a hot temper, you have likely seen someone express a hot temper. And if you grow up as an adult that continues to have a hot temper, you likely don't have somebody who's speaking the truth to you in love. Maybe your parents didn't. Maybe your parents didn't teach you that throwing fits will never get you what you want. I know, we live in a world where it seems like throwing fits gets you everything you want. But good parenting is, you throw a fit, you don't get what you want. But you've seen it, I've seen it. In the grocery store, at the impulse aisle, you know why they call it the impulse aisle. There's the stuff you don't need. But in the last minute, you want. And your kids are going to want. I want that candy bar. And throw a fit until you give them the candy bar because it's embarrassing. My child's throwing a fit right in front of everybody. Okay, 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 you throw a fit, I'll give you what you want every time. And then they grow up and i got to deal with them in my office as a Christian who thinks that if they throw a fit, they'll get the color of the carpet they want. And the church divides. <clears throat> so anger, having a hot temper, is a learned behavior. That's why Solomon taught us this in Proverbs, and God has it in Scripture for us. Here's a good bit of advice. It's one of my favorite counseling verses, James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's very good advice, but I don't want to neglect the next verse. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See the difference? This is not the anger of God, and it's translated as, you know, God's angry, so we're angry. This is the anger of man. It's not a godly anger. So be slow to anger. Otherwise, you are not demonstrating that you are a product of Christ. If there is someone in the room who has a hot temper problem, if you haven't been elbowed <laughs> this morning, it would behoove you to engage with that cognitive behavioral therapy. If you don't, 
you're going to become like oil in water. People don't like to be around hot-tempered people. If you're someone that flies off the handle on a regular basis, you, do you realize people don't want to be around you? What kind of Christian is that? A Christian that people are repulsed by is going to be ineffective. I, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but let's start with the thinking. That's just the way it works. Okay, so let's move on to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is a really cool passage. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That could be, that could, that, think about what that, in, in, what that covers. A lot of different things, and we're going to talk about a couple of those things. But let none of it come out of your mouth. Nothing that would contaminate others. Don't let that come out of your mouths. Let me, let me just give you a, a way that seems innocent the way we do it. In our world today, we think when people turn 21, they're supposed to get drunk. Have you, have you heard this? It's like, there's, there's people, there's Christian families that actually do this. People that have been raised in the church, they take somebody who turns 21 to the bar, this is your time. And getting drunk is wrong. So why would we do that? There's other things that we do. When we think that, you know, we're outside of the walls of a church, we're outside the reach of or sight of our parents, it's okay to justify what we do because we think that what we do is always okay. In fact, I've seen this with many Christians. You have these principles. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong until you've got a family member that's doing it. Now it's okay. This is wrong, this is wrong until... You're in a situation, and now you've done it, so it's okay. No, it's not. Just because you did it doesn't make it okay. We mess up. So don't justify what you've done with your corrupting talk. Don't tell somebody it's okay. You know, I mentioned that what happens if, you know, we're in the, out there in the open space in the next room over on some Sunday morning and some... Somebody you brought to church says a cuss word, you know, hopefully we just don't have a heart attack over it. We deal with it appropriately in a loving and gracious manner. But at the same time, let's not use that as a justification for us to do things like that. Let's say one of us, something slips out and another one hears it. You don't say, it's okay. Don't do that. It's not okay, Christians. It's not okay. That would be corrupting talk. You're telling somebody that it's okay to sin and sin separates from God. Don't do that. There's other ways, there's other corrupting talk we're going to talk about. But I want to focus on this. Look at this. Only such as is good for building up. I love that. And the reason why I have it underlined up behind me is because it says the word only. This is inspired scripture. God is saying only let things come out of your mouth that are good for building up. Only. 
So what about dealing with the negative things? What about if your brother is sinning and you've got to do what Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and following says, if someone's caught in sin, those of you who are spiritual should restore him gently. You know that passage? What if you've got to do that? How are you building up if you're confronting the negative? Well, what you're doing is you are restoring them. It's all in the same verse. You are confronting with the purpose to restore. That's building up. You're not criticizing just to criticize. You're going to the person and you're trying to help them improve their thinking, which leads to improved feelings and improved behaviors. That's the way it works. Okay. And then the rest of it, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's very important. We're going to look at another passage in just a minute. But I want to ask a question. What is, and I'm saying this because I've given the answer before and it's been a while, but I'm going to give, give you the question and the answer. What is the positive to negative ratio for balance? And the, I'm asking it this way, like uh, you're doing a pH balance. You know, like if you want to get the water right, how do you, if you drink a soda, how many of the same amount of water do you have to drink to get back to a level pH? You should look that up, by the way. It's amazing. Basically make you feel like, i got to quit drinking soda. But how many, what's the positive to negative ratio for balance? Well, Harvard Business Review did a study. And this study was a few years ago. I think it was 2014, but I could be wrong. You can look it up. Google knows this. It's right about that one. So you can look it up. And the Harvard Business Review went to a business, a large corporation. It might have been more than one. And they monitored how people performed based on negative comments given to them and, neg- and positive comments given to them. So they actually were able to physically measure performance. What's their baseline performance? Now interject, when we see a negative comment interjected, what's their performance? So, and what they did was they were able to measure what's the ratio, how many Positive statements do you have to say to get back to your baseline after a negative comment has been said? So if one negative comment is said, how many positive comments need to be said to get you back to your baseline? The answer is six. Six to one. That's the ratio. Now, let's bring in this cognitive behavioral therapy piece. And I'm going to do it with some words I haven't used yet, but I'll use them again today. First of all, think it. It's the first step. So when you're talking about other people, if we're going to... Would you say that the people that are in this room hear more negative than they do positive on a regular basis? We're typically... um, would you say it's balanced? Would you say that they get as much negative as they do positive? I don't know. But what we do know is that there, it takes six times the amount of, of statements to make it level if someone's been given a negative one. It takes six positive statements to level them off. Would you say people get that? Most of the time, not. So, if you, I want you to think about how you can do this. So first you have to think it. Think a good and positive thought about someone else. And then feel it. 
Don't just think it, feel it. Actually embrace it. Okay, yes, I, I believe it and I feel it. Yes, think that positive about that person. That's the way you, when you see them, you feel that good thought you have, it, you feel it. And then say it. That would be the behavior piece. Think it, feel it, say it. Now, I wanted to put that up there for you in this way, and I wanna, I'm going to do it like this. I'll just give you an example. Marcy, I heard you singing the other day, and that encouraged me because you had a, a happy spirit while you were serving the Lord up here at the church, and you probably didn't think anybody could hear you, but I heard you, and it made me smile, made me think good thoughts about you. There's a positive statement that I thought, I felt, and I just said, and I could do that with everybody here in the room. Unless I forget your name. Sorry if I do. But here's the way it's supposed to work. That's one time. Think it, feel it, say it. We have to do this. How many times now? Let me suggest to you seven. Because if it's six to one to get everybody level, if you want to actually encourage people, you got to go one more notch. Seven to one. You don't want them at their base level. You want to build them up, right? Don't take them back to where they were. Build them up. Think it. Feel it. Say it. 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 Do that seven times. And if we could do that as a church amongst ourselves, can you imagine how we could impact our families, our workplaces, and our schools? Wouldn't that be cool? This is what Jesus was talking about when he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at these words from Matthew chapter 5. I'll read them to you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The first piece is the salt. There's so many times when you can be eating some extremely bland food and a little bit of salt makes all the difference in the world. Christians, that's the way we're supposed to be. When we enter a room, our conversation should just make everybody love being around us. We spice it up in such a good way that we're not like the hot-tempered person. We're, have you been around people that are just a joy to be around? They're just Every time you're around them, you, you walk away feeling better. That's the way Christians are supposed to be. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. So all these people that don't know Christ, the Gentiles, as Paul would say it, they have darkened minds. They don't understand. They're in the dark on a lot of things. They just don't get a lot of things. Things don't make sense to them. They might have some science. They might have some archaeology. They might have some history. They might know math. But there are things that don't make sense to them in this life because they don't understand the Creator. They don't know Him. But we are the light. We bring light to the world. When we walk into a room, not only are we brightening up the room, we're providing depth and insight because that's what light does, shadows and such. Think it, feel it, say it. If we could be more purposeful with this, it would be more clear who the Christians are and who Christ is. 
Now, <clears throat> when I talked about the corrupting talk piece, I said we would talk about other types of corrupting talk. So I want to, another person to describe to you something that we often get confused on. And so rather than just me clearing it up, I would like somebody who's sitting in a coffee shop and an old video clip to do this for you. Are we past the commercials or do you know? All right. We will watch this and see what you think. <clears throat> One of the more confusing things 
when we talk about gossip is that there are people that think gossip is, is okay if it's true. It's not gossip. That's what people say. Well, that's what a gossip will say. They'll say, well, it's true. It's not gossip. It's true. We're going to get to that in a minute, but gossip, I'll tell you what gossip is, just a simple definition. It's somebody else's business you ought not to be sharing. True or not. If it's not your business to be sharing, don't share it. That would be gossip. Okay. Verse 30 in our text. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I love the subject of the Holy Spirit, especially when we're talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, which we are gifted once we are baptized into Christ, we're promised with the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is the power and, and glory of God in us. And when we grieve the Holy Spirit is when we continue to sin. We're dragging God through that because He is in us. Don't do that to Him. His Spirit is in you, intended to glorify God. Don't grieve the Spirit. Imagine what the Spirit of God is going through as he, the Spirit of God lives in you and you keep on sinning. You're dragging God through something you shouldn't be dragging God through. That grieves the Spirit. Don't, don't do that. There's more. Verse 31 and 32. This is actually where the text wraps up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger. Isn't that cool? The way God does this. He, he talked about anger, and now he's telling us, let all bitterness and wrath and anger. And He's talking about... Let it be put away. And then look at this, the word clamor. What is clamor? Clamor is making a whole bunch of chaotic noise, usually by yelling. This is the world in which we live, isn't it? People think they're going to win the argument if they simply are yelling louder. That's clamor. Get rid of it, Christians. We don't behave like that. And then that word slander. You want to talk about something that is false. See, people say, well, gossip is okay. If it's, if it's true, it's not gossip. If it's somebody's business you ought not to be sharing, it's gossip. If it's false, that is slander. That's what slander is. You're hurting someone else's reputation by slandering them, saying something that is not true. That is slander. Understand the difference between gossip and slander. They're two different things. But notice God in his providential sovereignty, he throws this in along with all malice. So anything that would fall into the category of malice, get rid of that. What is malice? Malice is intending someone else harm. That's what malice is. If you have something in you that intends someone else harm, get it out of you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was shown to you. That's what it says in the next verse. Be kind to one another, the opposite of malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Be sensitive to other people. 
Think of it. Would you want someone to treat your child or your brother or your spouse like that? Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God in Christ forgave you. Think about the cross. Think about what Jesus, the only perfect person that would ever walk this planet, gave his life for you, and you're not perfect. He was willing to forgive you with all your flaws and the flaws that you still have and the sins that you still commit. He's willing to forgive. Be gracious like that with others. Go back to our chart. Remember the chart where we have the cognitive behavior and all the stuff repents on there? I want to remind you, think it, feel it, say it. 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 Put it into practice, people of God, and we will represent him well. As we come to our time of invitation, invitation time is for all of us. Those who know Christ and those who do not know Christ. Those who know Christ, it's a time for you.